Brothers and sisters, welcome back to the XX Mormon Podcast. We are delighted that uh, that we are able to be gathered here on this beautiful Sabbath day. We hope that uh, that you found your way to us to us well, despite the weather. I'm saying that generally because somewhere there's bound to be inclement weather uh, going on, and even even if it's nice weather outside, we're glad you're here instead of having a picnic with your family and actually spending some real quality time instead of coming to this corporate retreat, uh, something we're going to get into more in future episodes. But uh, first, we're actually going to have a discussion led by our illustrious, our beautiful, our handsome Bishop Jensen. Thank you. Once again, uh, Bishop Jensen, I mean, Elder Jackson. Uh, You're welcome. I do aspire to be like you, but I am not. Yeah, as you should. I, being a representative of Jesus himself, we should all strive to become like Jesus. I remember I had a, there was a kid in my youth group, actually, when he gave his mission farewell talk, he went on and on about Joseph Smith and then instructed us all to try and be more like Joseph Smith because Joseph Smith tried to be like the savior, um, being the perfect representation of his likeness and such and such. Wow. Uh, I mean, this was all pre-church essays. This was pre-polygamy um, and, and you know, be, becoming widespread knowledge. But anyway. Right, right. Now, yeah. be like Joseph Smith is, uh, is something else. But that's an interesting thing, because like Wendy Nelson said that about old Russell as well, I think... Um, when I think about the prophet, I think about how I can be more like him because he tries to be like Jesus. And it's like, why don't I just cut out the <laughs> cut out the middleman? Middle yeah, just... well, why not just try to be try like to Jesus? Be Jesus. <laughs> wow. Huh? Because the prophet's meeting with him, you know, once a week. I I try in to be things that are equally worn in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> I tried to be like Bishop Jensen because he tries to be like the stake president who tries to be like the area authority who tries to be like, you know, whatever 12 apostle or the presidency of the core of the 70 all the way, all the way up the chain. become a double platinum member as well. <laughs> once, once, you, once you hit double... Once you hit field sales manager double platinum emerald status, <laughs> you have to you have to really get your downline going first, though. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because there's you know in the Venn diagram mm-hmm. of ex Mormons and anti MLM people, there's a big overlap, and I'm curious right. what the Venn diagram between ex Mormons and pro MLM people are like i want to know if we have any listeners email us at unmormon at gmail.com i just i'm just curious like do we have anybody who's in an mlm and would care to share uh in our congregation that we might all reap the benefits of selling uh selling poor quality essential oils and tights well i think i don't know if we we had this conversation off mic but it's kind of like when you leave the church, you get this, you you know, you earn a master's degree in sniffing out bullshit. Yeah. But not necessarily everybody does. Right. 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 Well, it's kind of like go latching like emotional high to emotional high. They become like Voldemort. Right. Latching on any emotionally validating thing they can find. And really that's going to become the crux of our episode. But 
I wonder if there are ex-Mormons who still go for MLMs and get-rich-quick schemes. It's like, hey, I figured out one total scam, but I'm going to go jump from scam to scam to scam because I find it emotionally validating. Right. Yeah, there's like some sort of meaning to it. And yeah, we have had that conversation where you either sniff it out and call it out and become like, nobody's ever going to fool me again. Or it's like a personal hobby of yours to get involved with these weird, scammy, scammy things. Um, <laughs> I, and I, and that, that said, that said, I think <laughs> post-Mormonism, we all find things to, to put ourselves into, to, to believe into and latch onto, like you mentioned, kind of these horcruxes. We put a piece of our soul in there for a young schoolboy to come along later and <laughs> save. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, why don't you tell us uh, tell us about your thoughts, how you feel about Encanto, Bishop? Okay, so let me just preface it. Frozen, I thought Frozen was the dumbest movie Disney had ever made. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because, like, musicals of all sorts have this tendency to put exposition into song, and it gets mm -hmm. really silly, right? Mm-hmm. And Frozen like dialed that up to eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Like every song was extremely expositional and yeah. didn't really drive the plot. Yeah. And it was almost like and, and even like watching the making of they wrote the song Let It Go and then they built a movie around the song Let It Go. Really? Yeah. Wow. They found the song Let It Go to be this very, very powerful song and it just kind of came out of nowhere. Was, they felt very, very inspired. Because originally they were going to tell like the, the Hans Christian Andersen Ice Queen story, which is completely different from Frozen. Right. Then they came up with this song, Let It Go, and it wasn't really with the story that they were originally writing. And so then it's like, how do we build a movie around the song, Let It Go? And, and once you see that, you can't stop seeing how shitty a movie that is. When you build a one hour, 20 minute movie around a four minute song. Right. It's going to be a terrible movie and everything right. is extremely expositional. And, and like, it's a, it's just, it's a terrible movie. And then there's Encanto. And then Disney just upped the ante with this insanity of like, mm -hmm. you know, Andean people fetishization and, and turning just like multiculturalism into this product to peddle. Right. Cause on the one hand I'd say Encanto, it's great. It's great that Disney's like doing these unique stories and multicultural stories and putting more women into the stories and putting women into the stories where they have a story that's not like defined by a prince or a man. Right. That's really, really good. But on the other hand, it's like Disney is also looking at this and saying, these are the common and popular ideas of the time, multiculturalism and the circle jerk of tolerance. So how can we make money off of this well, and so, become extremely wealthy? And Okay, this is a bit of a, a digression, but I think this is something really interesting when there is i mean it's it's june right now it's pride month you've probably mm -hmm. seen a bunch of corporations suddenly change their logo to yeah, be yeah. a rainbow and and they're touting we we love gay people and then you know for and, the month of june. yeah for the month of june and then as soon as it's over they're like well that was fun same thing like february with black history month it's like we love black people and then it's like at the end of it it's like Yes, yes. Uh, so how were our numbers in the last quarter? Did we sell to more black people? Did we sell to more gay people? Right? Like, yeah. it's a it's a it's a corporate thing. And so it's kind of one of those like, 
do the ends justify the means? Like, even though, um, even though it might be kind of heartless, there might still, I mean, there's probably still a lot of people within that corporation who feel that way, but the corporation itself is soulless and cares only to perpetuate itself. And if Disney sees that it has to, you know, uh, be more multicultural to do that, well, it's good that it's more multicultural, but also it's, it makes it, it cheapens it. It makes it feel like less of a celebration. And now I, I am a white guy, so I've always seen myself represented in Disney media, um, except for when they only did that talking animal stuff. Uh, hello, <laughs> representation, please and thank you. Right. Um, but so I, I can't I can't really speak to how how people feel about it. But Encanto does do. Um, I actually enjoyed it, um, but I only I watched it like half of it twice. You know. Yeah, um, but they do do the, a lot of exposition really fast in those songs. What I'd say the biggest problem with Encanto is that it's not a story, and it's so? not even a story worth telling. You don't think no, so? There's no, there is no. It's just stuff that happens. It's, it's like, hey, my name's Mirabelle. Everybody in my family's really special, and maybe I'll find my magic power. Oh no, I don't have a magic power. But even me finding my normalness isn't actually even what solves the problem. It's that my uh, mean grandma has to stop being mean. I did. Okay. I this did. is, this is, this, this is a movie about like an uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. There's lots of, it, there is, about there's that. no arc. There's no development. There's no progression. It's like, I found out I'm not special. And then by finding out that I'm not special, I realized that I'm not special. So I, finish the movie exactly the same as where I was when I started the movie and everybody finishes exactly the same except for my mean grandma who stops being a mean grandma Bishop I'm going to read you something that I got from Catholic Mass today yeah. um, uh, today we're recording on the day of Pentecost which is the day mm -hmm. that uh, the church was founded so actually we actually said happy birthday to the Catholic Church in Mass today uh, this is something we'll, we'll talk more about this next week's mm -hmm. episode but uh he's one of the one of the things was uh i hope you already know you have gifts and talents because to say that you don't have gifts and talents is an insult to the holy spirit um uh maribel does have gifts and talents and i think you saying that she doesn't is an insult to the holy spirit no i'm not that's what she says about herself right is everybody in my family has these magical gifts i don't and then I find out that I'm never going to get a magical gift, but that doesn't give me an ability to do anything. I just yell and scream and stomp my feet at my grandma until she realizes she's mean. And, you know, and we don't talk about Bruno. Oh, oh. <laughs> I, like, so it's not so much a movie as just like some family drama without like a beginning, middle or end. It's just kind of shit that happens and they don't really resolve or do anything. And then it's like, well, I don't want to marry this guy, so I'm not going to marry this guy. And then my sister who wants to marry this guy is going to marry this guy. And it's just like my, nothing happens. Okay. There is, it's not a story. It's just like water cooler gossip about someone's shitty family dinner <laughs> on Sunday. I actually, I actually enjoyed it a little bit. Because you have but... a lot of shitty family dinners on Sunday that you can relate to. No, like, no so I don't relatable. actually. I have really nice family my dinners. Gra my grandma but... insults me. <laughs> <laughs> the thing okay 
it it wasn't that I found it necessarily relatable, but I did I just I just enjoyed it. I thought it was fine, okay? Um but but the thing that I did have a problem with is the way that it's like, oh, grandma has a happy family and everybody's happy, but then Maribel's not going to get any powers so that grandma turns out to be a dirtbag and destroys the house uh, so that Maribel can heal. The, you know, like it was like using Maribel as a prop to help the grandma yeah. grow instead of Maribel being an individual human being who happens, you know, like it felt a little bit deterministic, which I think uh, cheapened it. Like when your main character doesn't have any, have any choices. So exactly. Like yeah. there is not like, there is no story so much as it's just shit that happens. Like they just kind of like, Hey, let's talk to some people who grew up in some Latino households and find out what their mean grandmas were like. <laughs> and then let's throw all these stories at the wall and then just kind of put, you know, opening credits and closing credits on it. And, and we, Hey guys, we've got like a, we've turned racial family stories into a movie. Let's product it, package it, put some catchy, shitty songs in it. And here we go. All the same. How yeah. let's get into how this relates. What, what does this have to do with yeah, anything? What, what, does this have, what does this have to do with anything so, at all? Bishop. So the day Encanto came out, there's probably like a dozen posts on the ex-Mormon subreddit about how Encanto is exactly like everybody's Mormon experience. <laughs> Where really it's like, there's a, it's like, oh my gosh, there's an outsider in the family and I'm an outsider and I have a family. This movie is exactly like my life. Exactly or, like it. I had really high expectations when on put on me when I was a Mormon and this family has high expectations put on these kids. This movie is exactly like being a Mormon. Do you think we it, romanticize our lives a little bit? Like almost, uh, like we look at it like it's a, a movie and we're the, we're the main character. We're so hard done by, Right. We have, like, internally, we have a story we tell about yeah. our lives, I think, right? Yeah. To make kind of make sense of everything. Right. And so, you know, Radio Free Mormon's doing this interview with John Delane, and one thing he says about teaching Sunday school is he said all the questions in the manual are just like, how does reading the Book of Mormon every day increase your spirituality? But nobody asks the question, does reading the Book of Mormon increase my spirituality right. at all? Yeah. And so on the flip side, when you're next Mormon, it's like you've, and, and I'm speaking, you know, from my own personal experience is that it's like, I know I would look around and it was like the inverse of that question. How does the book of Mormon increase my spirituality? It was like, how does every piece of media that I consume relate to being an ex Mormon? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying like this piece of media that's giving me an emotional pull right now, is it even worthwhile or interesting? Or am I just so hung up on this one point that relates to my lived experience so much that I'm just going whole hog on, oh my God, this is another ex-Mormon allegory. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I do think, I mean, I, I think part of the enjoyment of film or books or whatever is to see yourself in it and see how you relate to it, right? Like you read so many, so many books. Uh, like I was talking to my aunt about if if I talked to the missionaries and they they told me about the Book of Mormon as if I was an outsider, right? 
they told me mm-hmm. about the Book of Mormon, and I said, wow, that's really interesting. In one of my archaeology classes, we're actually talking about how there was, like, this mound builder myth, and people thought that there was this, like, white race of Native Americans who killed off the dark-skinned ones, and it was a totally racist idea, obviously, but that's fallen out of favor now. Like, nobody believes that anymore because we've shown that these things were built by the Native Americans, not some mystical white race that died out that they killed off, you know, and and we were talking about if I said that to the missionaries, would their wheels start turning? And maybe for some they would, but most of them would just, I'm saying one thing, I'm saying archaeological evidence disagrees with you, and they're hearing archaeological evidence agrees with me. And so I, I think that that ties in with what you're talking about. We hear what we want to hear mm-hmm. and and, and we yeah. see ourselves in things how we want to see it. And so instead of just jumping on, Encanto is a terrible movie. It is a terribly told story. And, um, and uh, I think that you just, you latch onto it because we've got this, you know, this outsider brother who um who said things the family didn't want to hear and we've got this grandma who wants to present like a perfect image to the world but there's lots of families who do that mm-hmm. i went to high school with a lot of uh chinese kids and a lot of my friends in high school and university were chinese and a lot of the people you know my first jobs out of high uh out of university with were chinese and they all talk about the intense uh pressure and expectations that their parents put on them right and one of them was telling me that like Chinese kids do not put a toe out of line in high school. They don't tip. She was just telling me, she's like, we don't have boyfriends. We don't drink. We don't party. We focus on school, focus on school, focus on school. And we don't start doing anything until after high school. That's where our parents start to ease up a little bit is mm-hmm. university. Like that's more intense pressure than Mormons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so saying that this is like a Mormon allegory, no, this is just a story about parents with high expectations and you can have parents with high expectations in every race, religion, and creed. Mormons don't have dibs on asshole parents. Right. But I, I think we can relate. I think a lot of people can relate. And I, my parents are great people. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I don't really relate on that level quite so much i think most of the pressure i had came from like my ward not my not my parents um or maybe 50 50 i don't know it was a you know kind of a mix but Mm -hmm. yeah i i think we see ourselves so do you think that us you know creating these little horcruxes putting our souls seeing ourselves in these things do you think that that's unhealthy do you think that that's bad no, I think it's necessary. It's just something that like I'm having fun looking back on mm-hmm. is that you have this emotional neediness and projecting onto everything. And I'm kind of starting to look back on myself and be like, there were a lot of things where I was just like, oh, that's too-. even when I was in the church and I'd mentioned this on the podcast before watching Moana, I, it built my testimony of like the people of Haggith, right? You know, because right. they had these close knit family groups and families are eternal. Where did they get that from the Nephites? And they got it through Haggith and that's Polynesian history written in the book of Mormon and on and on. And then I come out of the church and I start projecting on to everything. Right. And I think I mentioned that. I think we've talked a little bit about some of those things in past episodes. And now just that the emotional neediness is gone. When I start to see it on 
Reddit, it's like I can almost watch a movie and predict what's going to come up on the ex-Mormon subreddit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, everybody's going to go crazy with how this totally relates to their life. Yep. Yeah. And how this is totally the ex-Mormon journey. And this is totally everything. You know, there's one thing like John Larson in Mormon expression, he talked about Plato and the allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that he pointed out was that to Mormons, everybody else in the world is in the cave. Mm-hmm. And the Mormons are the ones who have stepped out into the light. Yeah. And they're trying to go back into the cave and tell people about the sun. And that's why people persecute Mormons. Yeah. Right. And that from Plato's point of view, his philosophy and religion was what was outside of the cave. Yeah. And all the other Greeks were in the cave. But his ex-Mormons were like, just read Plato's allegory of the cave. And this is totally <laughs> what it's like. And it's, you know, it's totally, this is exactly it. I took one step outside into the sunlight and everybody wants to kill me now. It's like, well, right. Mormons take the exact same story and feel the exact same way about it. There's even a post about Bruno um, where I guess some someone from the LDS church had compared Bruno to Nephi. Really? Right? And so everybody's just like, like you were saying before, we see what we want to see in these stories and we relate to it how we want to relate to it. Yeah. And, uh, so I think there's this stage of like emotional neediness where you're just like projecting your soul into every bit of media that you find. Yeah. Like Voldemort just yeah. clasping onto any living thing <laughs> any that will take thing. you and, and, yeah. and help you. I think like, I just think it's part of the grieving process, but it's when you're in the church, that's something you learn in the LDS church is emotional. If I feel good emotionally, mm-hmm. And if I feel validated emotionally, then this thing is good and this thing is right. So kind of the thing you learn or you have the opportunity to learn when you leave the church is that that's not a good way to make decisions or to find meaning. Mm -hmm. And so you can take a step back and be like, yeah, this Encanto movie is actually terrible. It's got a couple of characters that relate to my situation, but overall it's a piece of garbage. Um, I mean, Encanto could have been an amazing movie because it starts out with blood magic and human sacrifice. Like the Amboyla is telling her story. The grandpa has to run off. These guys on horses and machetes cut him down. And then after his blood is spilt in the river, the candle all of a sudden becomes magic and starts burning of itself and builds this magical Encanto. So tell me how it's not blood magic. Tell me how that the Encanto was not built by human sacrifice. (laughs) I think- and so if you had this story about the Ambuela trying to like every time there's a non-magical child in the family, she must sacrifice it. And that's what Maribel's destiny is going to be. And then she has to find <laughs> another way to like bring the family into peace and harmony without offering a human sacrifice to perpetuate the magic or, <laughs> or something like that. That would be a really interesting, unique story with an actual evil grandmother instead of just like this. My grandma's kind of a bitch. Do you know what? Okay, there's another Greek philosopher. I forget what his name was, um, but he basically said uh, it's silly for us to think of the the gods of Zeus and Hera that they have these squabbles, these petty squabbles like what we have down here. There's no way. Obviously, obviously, this is what a god is like. And when I learned about this guy, my thought was like he just did exactly what what they're doing 
right? He, everybody else has created this God in their mind or these gods in their mind and say, these, this, this is what they're like. And then this guy says, there's no way we can describe the gods. The gods are like this. And he goes on to describe his idea of what a god is and who a god is and how a god behaves. And I kind of feel like you're, you're doing something similar with film is you're like, these people introduce, uh, see themselves in these films and, and do these things in these films. Um, and they, they, you know, project themselves into the film on the main character. Um, but like, I'm watching the, uh, a film the right way. I haven't figured out how to enjoy the film. I haven't figured out how, how to see the film the right way. But I think there's a lot of different ways to, to watch films. I have movies that I watch just because I, I enjoy it because it's a fun ride. The, mm-hmm. One of the latest episodes for Star Trek Strange New Worlds, for example. There was no story. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much meaning behind it. I didn't learn anything new. But it was fun. Like, I was just entertained. I was laughing, right? Yeah. But then there are other things that I watch. Like, I watched the movie Arrival last week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like, this is so cool. My, you know, I've been awakened, right? And so I think we have different films we watch for different reasons. And it connects with us in different ways. Um, that said, um, I do appreciate what you're saying about maybe over projecting and uh i think we do that a lot in ex-mormonism be like wow that was exactly what my experience was like you know um people talk about wow that that was exactly what it was like leaving the church for me leaving the church was like super easy barely Mm -hmm. an inconvenience like i just i i realized it wasn't true it was a really slow process i figured it out on my own I slowly started to take in, uh, you know, ex-Mormon content because I realized it wasn't true and wanted to find people who thought like I did. And Mm -hmm. then when I was done at BYU-Idaho, I left. I told my family I was done. And honestly, like, it hasn't been a big change. But then because we're in this culture and everything, then I start watching these movies and there's this outcast you know, he got cast out because he was speaking the truth. And I'm like, oh, that was me, even though that never happened to me. Yeah. That's not my experience. But we tell these stories and we project onto things. And then I think they project back onto us, right? Mm-hmm. For me to say I'm like Bruno because my family doesn't want me, like, what a load. I chatted with two of my sisters just yesterday on the phone, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I think we project and then it projects back onto us. Sorry for that. That was no, like I, a long I agree. Rant. I think there you'd you'd watch a movie like Encanto or whatever it is, and you find the one thing out of a hundred. Yeah. And you ignore the ninety-nine things that are absolutely nothing yeah. like your experience. And then you find the one thing you're like, oh my God, this is exactly what my Mormon experience was like. And I think especially when I was angry, my view of my life in the church was kind of different from what it is now as I've just over time gotten less angry Mm -hmm. is I can look back at my parents and say, do you know what? Being raised Mormon, not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Like being raised LDS, you know, they talk about white privilege in terms of some parts of white privilege is like when, when white people say, you know what? I just, I worked hard. I went to school. 
I had to fight for everything I got. I'm really insulted by this idea of, of me being privileged because I'm white. And what uh, like a counterpoint, a counter argument to that is, is that when you're raised in a home where your parents tell you to work hard in school and to go to university, and that's presented as a path and an opportunity, that's not, that kind of environment's not something that everybody gets. Right. You're systemically set up yeah. for that success. To Which find is what that's, that success. I'm not I'm not sure I a hundred percent agree with that, but I'm saying that's the counterpoint, right? Well, is that you if you're raised in the ghetto with in a broken family and you don't know who your father is, your mom's a drug addict, you're not gonna go through life with the framework of work hard in school, work hard in my job, be honest, yeah. tell the truth, don't steal, don't join a king. Yeah. And so when you're raised in the church, you're kind of raised with a white privilege mindset if you're not getting it from home that school is important yeah and working hard is important you're gonna get that from going to the youth program in church yeah and well, so and you're gonna grow up with these values of hard work and education and you're gonna get it from somewhere and that's not there's a lot of shitty things that happen in the church yeah but in some ways it's i can't say it's the worst way to grow up yeah well and i think too that uh, even beyond white privilege, there are a lot of other types of privilege in different groups and in different situations. And um, we were talking, my aunt has like, you know, air miles and whatever up the wazoo. And so, you know, she gets special treatment with like Air Canada and stuff. And, you know, we were talking about membership has its privileges. Being mm -hmm. Mormon has its privileges especially in the area where we grew up i never i never had to put in any effort to find a job because mm. oh somebody in the ward has a company and they're looking hiring. for a job somebody yeah. somebody in the ward has a job at another place and they're a hard worker and so they're trusted and then i get i get the job it's not like i didn't work hard when i got the job i mm. i've always been a good employee but that initial like privilege gets you in gets you mm -hmm. in the door. That's like the first step that you're talking about. That first step of like even thinking I can have, um, I can I can go to school. Like that's an option in my mind. Like yeah. even that is is a privilege. Um, and yeah, and, and so I, I think you're, yeah, you're exactly right. There are a lot of privileges. And honestly, I know a lot of people have absolutely horrible experiences, but and and I think that when we consume media that makes us say like that's me like that speaks to me however it speaks to us is is fine but I also think maybe we need a little bit more self awareness uh, mm -hmm. post Mormonism to see the ways that you know maybe we're falling back into uh, instead of like a, a cult of Mormonism we're fall, falling into a cult of ex Mormonism right there's yeah. certain yeah. words and rites of passages. Um, that yeah, that we believe say. in our father John Delin and in his son Jeremy <laughs> Runnels and in his Holy Ghost Kate Kelly. Like, right, right, you know, yeah, there, there's these names, these holy people. We believe the CES letter to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's, ex it's exactly like that. There's dogma that comes along with it, um, and there's you know, there's materials right lots of podcasts mm -hmm. that come along with it um and 
yeah, so I, I think uh, it's important to be, I mean, being in the ex-Mormon space is really important. I know uh, after I decided to leave, uh, mm-hmm. I decided to get on Reddit and participate in the subreddit, and that's how Bishop Jensen and I actually met. Um, although we probably, I mean, we probably should have met a long time ago, but um, knowing a lot of the, the same people. But um, the the subreddit was a really important place for mm-hmm. me to, to come and kind of put up my feet and find community for people who also figured out that this whole thing is BS. Um, but then I think there's also the importance of being self-aware mm-hmm. and realizing, oh, we have our own words and our own dogma and, you know, make sure that it never gets to the point where, you know, we're just as bad as the other guy. Mm-hmm. Which, um, I think you'll go through a phase just kind of trading one, one, you trade one church for the other one. Yep. Um, and, but I just don't think that the ex Mormon stage is this, it's not, it's a way station of better things. Yep. Yeah. If we could put a tagline into this podcast, I call it the XX Mormon podcast, call in the way station of better things. Uh, we can put a tagline in. Action. Oh, can we? Yeah. Yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> a way station to better things, brothers and sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, actually, our subtitle is Moving On From Mormonism. So Okay. Moving on from Mormonism. And that's really just another way of saying way station to better things. Yeah. But yeah, because there's you know, we okay, so um you know ex Mormons, like we define ourselves by something we're not, uh, which mm-hmm. is Mormon. We're not Mormon. Um mm-hmm. but we are former Mormons. And I don't expect that, you know, that ever stops becoming part of our identity right it's part of our experience it's part of our story right for a lot of us it's you know the the first act maybe the first and second act maybe almost all three acts and it's only at the beginning that we find out uh, or at the Mm -hmm. end that we that we find out it's not true and then then we get out um but i think um there's something satisfying when um, I know a lot of the relationships that I made with people right out of Mormonism have been very much like, hi, I'm Elder Jackson, the ex-Mormon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a certain satisfaction that comes from the relationships where it's just, I'm Elder Jackson. I, yeah, I have a lot of interests and I do this and I like this and I'm studying this and, you know, um, and that's what this whole podcast is is about i feel like this episode got a little bit preachy yeah but it, it's a part of the like we're learning and growing and you want to share and i mean we're not standing up on a people are choosing to listen to this right right i think like one thing rfm has been talking about this a bit on his his podcast with uh, mormon stories but i've been thinking about it as well like you used to try and commit to reading the scriptures and the book of Mormon for like 10 minutes a day, or just read one chapter a day or whatever it was. There's this whole universe of literature yeah. and spend some time reading that and try and commit yourself to reading those kinds of things. I think go look at just Google a list of like 
most influential novels or most controversial novels Mm -hmm. or um, like the church spends a lot of time teaching you to be afraid of certain kinds of literature. Mm -hmm. Go and read, like I read Hannibal and I read um, Silence of the Lambs because I was told those books were scary Hmm. and I didn't want to be afraid of books anymore. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and so I'm going to pick up, I was reading about Les Miserables. Yeah. Uh, whether or not to read it abridged or unabridged. Yeah. And everybody's saying that you have to read the unabridged, even though he puts in like big essays about like the battle of Waterloo and the sewer system in Paris and all these. But I think I read a bigger, more boring book. Yeah. And I spent, so I can commit myself. I think I could go to chapters. I could buy that tome and I could commit myself to reading a chapter a day. And it might take me a year to read it or two years or something like that, you know, to read it a chapter at a time, Um, but I'll be a better person for it. And I don't need to go read that book in search for meaning. I think like when you're in the church, you have to find meaning Mm -hmm. and conclusions and I can just read it. And I can, at the end of the book, say this spoke to me, this didn't speak to me. This is nonsense. Um, This is not relevant. This is very relevant. And then continue to read. And then as you read a breadth of stuff, you can start saying, you know, this thing that Hugo said is comparable to this thing this other author said. Mm -hmm. And then you can just start, I don't know, kind of building your, your experience and your culture. Like we went to a dance recital for my daughter. The tough part about going to a dance recital is like your child is in it for 10 to 15 minutes and it's a three hour escapade. (laughs) You got to sit through everybody else's child. Yeah. And my son came and uh, one of my son's friends from school came because I think they had a couple friends that were in the same dance school. Um, But the thing I was telling myself is my kid is getting culture by sitting here. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He's getting culture and experience by sitting here watching this dance recital. So this isn't, there's worse places to be on a Saturday evening. Yeah. Right. So by reading a breadth of things, expose yourselves to culture, expose yourselves to uncomfortable ideas and different ideas and uh, read things that you wouldn't want to read. I like that. I really, yeah. I think this has been a great sermon, Bishop. Thank you. Um, I, I really, I, I actually think there's a lot of valuable insights um, in this one. Like, I'm glad I watched Encanto. I yeah. think it was, like, it was interesting. I have some friends who are uh, from from Central and, and South America, mm-hmm. and they kind of would talk about their mothers, and their mothers kind of seemed like the umbrella, mm-hmm. um, like, kind of judgmental, focused on appearances. I mean, some friends from El Salvador their moms would tell them they're getting fat and they need to trim down or else they're not going to get married. Like just, yeah. and that's like, whoa, we don't talk to each other like that. And they're like, Oh, this is how all, uh, you know, Latina moms talk. I don't know if that's true, but this is what they're telling me. Um, so watching Encanto, I mean, it was interesting to see another culture represented on film. Like that's, a, that is a part of the movie that I actually did enjoy. Right. Right. Um, it's the plot. You didn't enjoy the story. The plot because there wasn't one it just like it wasn't there there was no plot. stuff just happens yeah and then the songs are very if you like, ask me that is a plot stuff happens 
yeah, but it, like it's <laughs> like I could write a journal about my days. I woke up, I had breakfast, I went to work, I ate lunch, I continued to work, I came home, had dinner, put the kids to bed, went to bed, watched a movie. That there's no kind of like there's no stakes, there's no protagonist antagonist. There's just like stuff you know happened. Some of it was good, some of it was unpleasant. At the end of the day, I went to bed. I and hope that's I hope somebody out there turns that what Bishop Jensen just described into a feature film and uh, and demonstrates that it can be exciting and interesting. They already did. It was called Encanto. <laughs> right? Do you know, there, we watched Annie as a family, and Annie has one expositional song that just, like, tips the scales of ridiculousness. Because, like, like, every time I watch a musical, I'm, like, in the uncanny valley. I'm, like, nobody bursts into song and starts dancing. But I understand that there's something exciting or interesting happening. Mm -hmm. So that's worth a song and a dance, right? There's this one song in Annie called We Got Annie. And they're just talking about how Daddy Warbucks wants to adopt her. Right. And it's like a two-minute song. And the main lyric is We Got Annie. And it's like all these, you know, all the help around Daddy Warbucks' house that hasn't really interacted with Annie or we haven't seen them interact is like, oh, my God, we got Annie. And I just, like, I laughed out loud because I was like, this is just this pushes the suspension of unbelief too far. I can't handle it anymore. But that one throwaway song from Annie becomes like every song in these contemporary Disney musicals where it's just like, nothing about this is interesting or exciting. We're just singing a song about like making snowmen and like sometimes people aren't, you know, he's a fixer upper. So you gotta, he's a bit of a fixer upper. And we're cutting ice blocks. Look at us hey, cut ice. That's my favorite song. I love uh, the manly songs. <laughs> like, we're cutting ice and we're building snowmen. And <laughs> I'm going to take off my clothes and let it go. And like. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> there's nothing interesting about this. I think you need to sing more. Um, I've been thinking about getting more into musicals. I'm quite unfamiliar, but I have a friend who just went to Broadway. Um, mm -hmm. He's not in Broadway. He was at Broadway. He like saw oh, okay. a show. Um, that would be pretty cool though. If I had a friend in like a Broadway production, right? That'd be, be fabulous. That would be, be fabulous. Fabulous. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't, uh, I saw that movie once. So sorry if that was, off key and you know wrong tune or whatever i don't know i don't know anyways uh this has been lovely thank you for your thoughts uh that was great i think we learned a lot and uh i guess we'll just close in the name of bruno who we don't talk about amen amen <laughs>